I want to invite you to turn back to our study in the book of Hebrews. We're now up to the fifth message in the book of Hebrews, looking this morning at a wonderful passage. And I hope and I trust that by the time we get done with it today, you will certainly agree with me. This is a phenomenal passage about what we have in Christ. We're going to be looking this morning at chapter 4, verses 1 to 11, and looking specifically at the subject matter, the rest that we have in Christ. The rest that we have in Christ. And we're going to be talking about that this morning before we observe the Lord's Supper together. And so if you would stand with me for the reading of God's Word, the rest that we have in Christ. The writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, while the promise of entering His rest still stands... Let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest although his works were finished from the foundation of the world for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way and God rested on the seventh day from all his works and again in this passage he said they shall never enter my rest since therefore it remains for some to enter it and those who formerly received the good news fail to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day. Today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then... There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Father, again, we ask today that you would give us ears to hear what your Spirit is saying to your church. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Folks, it would seem that as a culture, and really most cultures around the world, we are not getting enough rest. Around 1900, the year 1900, people were sleeping nine hours per night. In 1942, eight hours of sleep per night was the norm. Now, roughly 6.8 is the norm. 
In a study of 48 different countries, adults in all 48 of these nations were not getting the recommended eight hours of sleep per night. In Japan, the average is only 5.59. However, napping in the course of the day is accepted in that culture. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? New Zealand fared the best with adults sleeping seven and a half hours per night. Health experts say that not enough rest accounts for significantly higher rates of just about every disease. As well as higher mortality rates at younger ages. Now, adding to the difficulty of eight hours of sleep is the fact that with our modern conveniences and electricity, for which we're all very thankful, we are now a 24-7 culture. Instead of going to bed when it gets dark, what do we do? We stay up late. We watch television shows or we get on our electronic devices. Again, most people indicate that they are not getting sufficient sleep. But sadly, at the same time, few people seem willing to make the lifestyle changes that are well within their own control so that they could get more sleep. Rest matters. Now, folks, in Hebrews chapter 3 and continuing in Hebrews chapter 4, we are introduced to what the Bible says about rest. But it is rest of a different nature. We learn here that there is a rest for the people of God, and yet it is a rest that the majority of humans know nothing about. Dr. Ligon Duncan, president of Reformed Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi, uses one word to describe this passage. You know what that one word is? It is the word chilling. This is a chilling passage. I think he's exactly right. What do passages like this, like this particular one today, what do these type of passages say to a typical mindset that we see today where people believe that everybody goes to heaven? What about the mindset that believes that God is love, which he certainly is, but the mindset that says God is love while it ignores that the Bible tells us that God is holy and that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God and that our God is a consuming fire. Such thoughts like that aren't received very well today. And yet such thoughts are very biblical. Do you realize that more is said in the Bible on the wrath of God and the holiness of God than is said about the love of God? We would do well to have a healthy perspective 
on the nature of God that we see in the Bible, that we keep things in proper balance and in proper perspective. Now, if you enjoy taking notes, which I hope you do, I've only got two points this morning. And point number one, I want you to see that there is a rest for the people of God. There is a rest for the people of God. He says in verse 1, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Just look at the way this chapter opens. We find here the wonderful good news that there is a rest for the people of God. But then he goes on to say, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Some commentators agree, many commentators agree that the NIV's phrasing, let us be careful, is much too weak. Let us fear is the better translation of the Greek text. But notice what he says, while the promise of entering his rest still stands. What what wonderful news. There is the promise of entering God's rest. Folks, I don't know about you, but to me those are words that are filled with grace and mercy. In the Bible, rest is used in different ways. Different ways in different contexts. In Genesis chapters 1 and 2, we see God creating the world in six days. When the Hebrew word yom for day has the numerical marker in front of it. First day. Second day, third day, so forth and so on. It always means a literal 24-hour day. Just like our days today. Now at times the Hebrew word yom, depending on the context, if it does not have the numerical marker in front of it, it can refer to an elongated period of time. Like when the Bible says something like the day of the judges. Of course we know that's referring to a period of time. Genesis 1 and 2 tells us that after six days of creating the heavens and the earth and all that is in them, what did God do? God rested. Now the Bible tells us that God neither slumbers nor sleeps. God never has to say, it is past my bedtime. When it says that God rested, it is more in the sense that God completed his work of creation. And then God stepped back to look at it and he enjoyed it and celebrated it. But because of God's pattern in creation, he established a pattern for you and me to have. Later on in the Old Testament, we're told that we're to work six days and rest a seventh. And of course that seventh day was referred to as the Sabbath. 
the children of Israel were commanded to observe the Sabbath. In fact, they were to even give the land a Sabbath rest at intervals. One of the reasons for the 70-year exile in Babylon is because God says he was reclaiming the Sabbath rest for the land because the people had failed to do that. They had ignored the Sabbath. But then after they came back from the exile and during the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament, we see the rise of a group, various groups, but a group that we read about in the New Testament. A group known as the Pharisees. The Pharisees and the scribes and the teachers of the law were absolutely determined that never again would Israel be guilty of things like breaking the Sabbath. And so they added all kinds of regulations to the biblical teaching on the Sabbath. They ended up adding so many extra biblical things to the teaching on the Sabbath they made it virtually impossible for the average man to do anything. For instance, you could eat an egg that your chicken laid on the Sabbath but if you did, you had to kill the chicken because the chicken had worked on the Sabbath by laying the egg. You could not look into a mirror that was attached to a wall on the Sabbath because if you looked into a mirror attached to the wall, you might see gray in your hair and you would be tempted to pluck that gray hair out and so you would be guilty of reaping on the Sabbath. If you were walking along on the Sabbath outside, you could spit on a rock but you couldn't spit on the ground on the clay because if you spit on the clay the combination of the the spit the moisture from the spit plus the clay could be used to make what mortar and so again, it was a sign of working. You couldn't do it. On one occasion when Jesus was walking through a field on the Sabbath with his disciples and they were picking grain to eat, the Pharisees came down hard on Jesus for this and Jesus corrected them and he said, Don't you understand that the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath? In other words, the Sabbath rest each week was a special gift for man's benefit. The Sabbath was not given so that man would have to slavishly bow down to it and observe it in some kind of heightened legalistic way. But yes, man was to have a day of rest and worship. It was a command. But of course, as I mentioned, the Pharisees turned it in something, into something that God never intended. When you think, though, about a day of worship and rest, it was a chance to worship God and recognize that God is the giver of all good gifts. We aren't simply to go on living our lives and working and playing without setting aside setting aside a day to worship God. We still do this. It's called the Lord's Day. The first day of the week. 
The early church moved the day of worship. Now, folks, understand this. This is a powerful defense, a powerful apologetic that the resurrection of Jesus Christ did, in fact, happen because here's a group of Jews tenaciously uh, holding to the Sabbath for centuries, and yet here they are because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They are now worshiping on the first day of the week. The Lord's Day in recognition and celebration of the resurrection of Christ. The Bible commands us in Hebrews chapter 10 that you and I today in the new covenant are to still set aside time to worship corporately and participate in the body life of the church. It's not optional. It's one of the New Testament commands. This day is also to be a day of rest, a day to recharge our batteries, a day to reflect back with to reflect with gratitude back upon the previous week and to look ahead in faith and anticipation of the coming week. It is a gift to man. Man is not a machine that just goes on and on and on without ever stopping. And man is not the one responsible for the good that comes his way. And so God is to be worshipped. God is to be recognized. And so the rest that we have on the Lord's day is a time for worship and rest. Folks, you can't help but at least wonder if the rise of so many stress-related diseases and things of that nature, you, you have to just wonder if it doesn't coincide at least in some way to the fact that we are now a 24-7 society. Man never unplugs. And sadly, most in society choose not to worship. Are we reaping the consequences of all of this? I think so. But a day set aside, that is, that is one way that the Bible uses this concept of rest. But there's another way, a second way. The Bible uses it in the, in the sense of salvation. We, we rest from our work. In other words, we do not trust in our work. We trust in the work of Jesus Christ. When we cease from our labor in that sense and trust in Christ's labor, we enjoy the salvation that Christ provides. And then there's a third way that rest is used in the Bible. The New Testament uses rest in the sense of the heavenly rest that we will have one day. Now, when the Bible speaks of the future heavenly rest, it doesn't mean that we're going to float around on clouds, strumming harps all day for all of eternity. 
But it means that in that forever sense, we will rest from all of our earthly sins and struggles. The daily battle that we're engaged in with the enemy, with Satan, will forever be over. And so again, there's there's rest in a literal sense. A day to worship and reflect and recharge. There's rest in the salvation sense and there's rest in the heavenly abode sense. Those are the ways that the New Testament uses this concept of rest. Now, it's clear in verse 1 here that he's speaking of some combination of of the second and third meanings of rest. The salvation that we have in Christ, the moment we become justified in God's sight and reconciled to Him. And then the consummation of our salvation in that day when we are with Him in heaven. He's using rest here, a combination of those senses. And he's talking about this is a rest that is available. No wonder when you, when you see rest in that light, no wonder that he goes on to say, let us fear lest any of you should have seemed to have fallen short of this. And so again, there is a rest for the people of God. Second thing I want you to see this morning is this rest comes through a biblical response to the message of the gospel. This rest comes through a biblical response to the message of the gospel. Notice how he says that the good news came to us just as it did to them. Now that's an interesting thought, isn't it? We know that the good news comes to us in the New Testament. But even in the Old Testament, the people were saved by grace through faith and not through the keeping of the law. Genesis 15.6 says that Abraham believed God and God credited it unto him as righteousness. And so Abram, at that time, of course he becomes Abraham, Abram receives commendation from God and God credits it to Abram as righteousness when Abram believed God's word And that happened 400 years before the giving of the law. 400 years before the giving of the law. So many have the unbiblical idea of how people in the Old Testament were saved. People tend to think Old Testament saints were saved through keeping the law. No, they were not. They were justified by faith just like you and me. Theologians speak of their faith being proleptic, looking forward. 
In other words, in all those sacrifices that they did, they knew that one day, somewhere in the future, God was going to give them the perfect sacrifice that all of those sacrifices they were currently doing looked forward to. We look back on Calvary. They looked forward to it. But he says here that although they had the good news brought to them, it did not do them any good. Why? Because while they heard the good news, what happened? They did not respond in faith. They did not believe. Folks, you are not saved simply because you come to church and hear. I hope you realize that. You can sit in church week after week and be just as lost as the pagan man out on the street. In fact, there may be a sense in which you are more lost, although we know there's not degrees in lostness. But you know what I'm saying. What, I, what I'm saying is because you hear the good news over and over and over again and yet do not believe there's a hardness that builds up in the human heart. A callousness that in some sense makes you more steeped in unbelief and even more difficult to reach. It is dangerous to hear over and over and over again and yet to do nothing with the message. James says, let us be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving ourselves. I think of that parable that Jesus told about two builders. Remember that parable that he he told? He, he said, uh, the one who has these words of mine, who listens and does nothing with them, is the foolish builder, builds his house on the sand. The one who hears these words of mine and does them, believes them and acts upon them, is like a wise builder. He hears these words of mine, he, he does them, and he's the wise builder. Now, in both cases, the storms come. The rains fall, the winds blow, the floodwaters rise. Just because you are a Christian does not spare you from the trials and troubles of life because we live in a fallen world. But Jesus said the man whose house is built on the rock will stand in that, in that ultimate day. And scholars are agreed what he's talking about is that that eschatological day, that end time day of judgment, when we stand before God in that day. That's the storm that he's talking about in, in, in that parable. In that day, the foolish builder, his house is going to collapse his life. It won't stand. Why? Because what he heard was not joined by faith. But look at what he says in verse 3. For we who have believed enter that rest. 
And, and he makes clear by what he goes on to say here that he's not just describing a rest like on the Sabbath day that was to be observed in recognition of God finishing his days of creation. He's talking about something more than the mere Sabbath day. And then he goes on to make clear in verse 8 that just like he wasn't talking about a normal Sabbath day understanding, he also makes clear that he's not simply talking about the rest that the children of God had when they crossed the Jordan and they entered into the promised land. And when he goes on to talk about this rest, it would seem that even then he's blending these two two thoughts together because they overlap. He's speaking of the rest God gives in salvation, but he's also speaking in the fuller sense of the rest that we'll have in heaven one day. That's my understanding of what he's getting at here. And it makes sense because I believe that the Bible teaches that if you are genuinely saved, It is a salvation that is secure. And so if you're saved, then you will most certainly make it to heaven one day. No one who has entered rest in the sense of salvation will fail to enter God's rest in the sense of heaven. And look at what he says there in verse 10. Whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works. What in the world do we make of that? If you have entered God's rest, if you have believed the good news and responded with biblical faith, you know what you've done? You have rested from your labors and you are trusting in the work of Christ. In fact, it's precisely when you rest from your efforts and work and trust Christ's work, that's when you're saved. The problem with far too many people today is that they're still trying to make it to heaven based on their work and it'll never happen that way. Folks, this is such a theologically rich passage. It's wonderful. It's encouraging But it's also stern at the same time. What's he say in verse 11? Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. I think he's essentially saying the very same thing that the apostle Peter said when Peter admonished those to whom he wrote to make sure that their calling and election is certain. In other words, the Bible is saying your life will bear witness To the reality of your faith. Your life itself will offer the evidence one way or the other whether or not you're saved. And so he's saying simply strive to make sure you've got the real thing. Now to that point look at the end of verse 11. He says, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. What's he mean? Well, think about it. Those who fell in the wilderness, they were in the company of believers. 
they would have said they were in the company of believers. In body, in flesh, in blood, they were in the group of believers. And they would have said that they were believers, but in reality, their lives showed that they were in fact not believers. Again, you can be in church, you can be in a Christian family, you can even be in a Christian marriage. And you can say all the right things that you think you're supposed to say and yet you can be lost. How? Because your life will tell the truth. It's not that you can't know. The Bible is saying you can know. Just look at the testimony of your life. John in 1 John says, first of all, have you believed what the Bible says about Jesus Christ? And have you believed upon him? Secondly, do, as a result of that, do you love obedience? Do you love the things of God? And does your life show that? That as a pattern you love the things of God. And thirdly, do you love the people of God? Your life will show. Now, before I close, I want you to think about something. Salvation, which ends in heaven, is described here as being rest. What a beautiful symbol. But think about the opposite. Folks, when you and I speak of hell, normally what do we see in the Bible? We think of words like darkness, we speak of fire, we speak of torment. But I want to add another thought to hell. Think of a place where there is unending turmoil. Where there is no rest. There's no rest, no peace. And so on top of suffering... On top of torment, on top of being away from the presence of God for all of eternity, there is restlessness. And we actually get a glimpse of that in the Bible. Remember what was said about Cain when Cain killed his brother and God drove him out? You remember what it said of Cain that he was to wander the earth in a restlessness. And then Jesus told a parable about a house being swept clean and a demon leaving, uh, being kicked out. And he goes and he wanders in restlessness and, and he finds seven demons worse than himself. And then they come back and they occupy that house to where the last state is worse than the first. But what I'm talking about, what I'm trying to get at, in both of those instances, what do we see a restlessness. There's no rest. There's no peace. Can you imagine standing before Christ one day and hearing the words, Depart from me, I never knew you. And you go to a place where there's not only suffering and torment in the flames of hell, but there's this constant restlessness. There's never any peace. But aren't you glad through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, God has made it to where we can be at peace with Him and we can enter into His rest. Amen.
And what a beautiful thought that is as we enter into the time of the Lord's Supper. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you have given us salvation and rest. In fact, Jesus said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. God, I pray today for those who need to come to Christ. They need to unite faith with what they've heard. They've heard the good news about Christ. They hear it here in Sunday school every week, in youth and children's ministries, in the choir, through the preaching of your word. They've heard. But has it been united with faith? I pray for the one that it hasn't been. And Father, I I believe that what your word is teaching, if they will only look at the testimony of their life, they will know. Just like believers can look at the testimony of their life, the change in their life. And they can know that they are saved. Lord, help the one who does not have rest to come to Christ even today that they might enjoy His rest. And as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, Lord, may we celebrate the fact that You've not only given us the forgiveness of our sins and reconciliation with the Father, but You've given us rest. Thank You. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.